Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on April the 1st, 2011. Newcomers, I suggest you look into my website cuttingthroughthematrix.com and help yourself to the audios which are there for download for free. There's hundreds to choose from and hopefully I'll give you shortcuts to understanding this big complex picture, the system into which you've been born and how it interweaves with private organizations, uh, incredibly rich organizations, foundations, and uh, private clubs, and uh, clubs, too, of, of CEOs of international corporations, and how they basically run the world, where you're being taken, how academia, of course, is all part of it, too. They're on board with these boys who really pay, uh, pay their way, and uh, how they brainwash everyone and every generation along this path which is to be a non-democratic system of any kind, where experts will simply be chosen from amongst themselves and put in place over you to dominate you. And you have to be taught to accept this. And people, I think, unfortunately, will be trained quite easily to accept this kind of system. All you need is enough crisis in the making, an actual crisis to make it happen. And they take advantage, of course, of any natural crisis that comes along. That's part of their, their pretty well their tenant uh, of uh, the future. So, hopefully, as I say, I'll give you shortcuts. And remember, too, that you're the audience who bring me to you. I don't bring on guests who sell products. And uh, the ads you hear on this show, the ads are paid by advertisers straight to RBN for the broadcast. And um, I could bring them on as guests, absolutely, but uh, it kind of compromises you to an extent. So um, the money that, that uh, they take in with your advertising goes straight to RBN to pay for this airtime and staff and equipment at RBM and for their bills too because we all get massive bills and it's expensive certainly to run a, a broadcast station. So help me with my bills and you can buy the books and discs I have for sale at cuttingthroughthematrix.com. Uh, from the U.S. to Canada, you can still use a personal check or an international postal money order from your post office. You can send cash or you can use PayPal uh, to order. Uh, use the donation button you'll see on the com site and follow it with an email with name, address, and order, and I'll get it out to you as fast as I can. In other countries, of course, you can use uh, PayPal again to order, and straight donations, believe you me, are also welcome for those who want to do that. Uh, <laughs> literally, you spend thousands of hours giving out free um, broadcast to people with lots of information, that, uh, which is copied by everyone, really, and... Um, very few ever donate, and that's a sad thing, a statement really on, on today's society. But as I say, you can, you can do straight donations, you can also order through PayPal, and you can also use Western Union or MoneyGram. That's an alternative too. And every uh, article I mention on this broadcast, you'll find I put up at cuttingthroughthematrix.com at the end of the show, or I shouldn't say this show, I'm trying to get that out of my head altogether. Show is show business, you understand, and this is not show business. We're in a very serious predicament as we go through this, this uh, totalitarian system, or at least into it, 
and um, we're going to stop using the terms that they give us because we're not shows at all. Uh, shows are for show business, and show business is fiction. And, and today you can't tell the television, it's all mixed together. You can't, most folk can't tell what's fact and fiction, and that's part, of course, entertainment and how they've managed the minds of the general public. So go into the site, as I say, and I'll put up all these different links, and you can check them out for yourself. And one of them, too, is, is to do with um, the military-industrial complex, because this new system that was really uh, thought of hundreds of years ago and written about uh, in the 20th century, more so the early 20th century, is coming to fruition uh, with the military boys and top academia, as I say, experts running our lives. Back with more after this break. Hi folks, we're back and we're cutting through the matrix talking about the military-industrial complex really and it's interwoven with our lives and it's definitely interwoven with all governments and all kinds of levels including all surveillance and data collection and security because they realized that eventually when they ran out of wars because they've almost taken over the whole planet under this one system uh, they'd have to uh, turn it inwards to the people where the Soviet system did the same thing. Once they put their borders around them, basically heavily guarded, uh, they had to find terrorists within. And, you know, that's what they had all through the Soviet era. Uh, people who had the wrong think, you might say. They're all wrong think. And they had to be righted or put in Siberia. But anyway, we find the same system here. This is pretty standard with all authoritarian-type systems. And the Club of Rome has already said in their own writings that the system they're bringing in on behalf of the United Nations, it's because it's a top think tank for the UN. They've said it's to be authoritarian, it's not to be democratic at all. And we already know we are in this kind of system. In fact, when you think of democracy as it's been panhandled to us basically for so long, uh, you th- you think of, they think of us as the shareholders, you see, because we pay for everything. And there's not, no return comes back on you whatsoever, and it's the only shareholder stock you can, you can actually keep losing, and you can't fire the CEOs. That's what they call democracy. But as we know, we don't vote them in the first place, and uh, uh, the Council on Foreign Relations and other globalist societies, which they have scattered across the world, uh, don't believe in democracy anyway. And we've never really had it, to be honest with you. All the revolutions you've seen in the 20th century within your own countries, that the bloodless, so-called bloodless revolutions, were actually funded by the big foundations that are part of this globalist system to change society so radically uh, that uh, they fulfill the Marxist uh, or communist manifesto, basically, and then they could handle the people much more easily when there's no family units at all to stand up for each other and everyone's basically um, into themselves. Russell was very good at describing the system. He said, he said, we'll make them narcissistic, people, self-lovers, basically, and that's what you have. It's all about me, isn't it? It's all about me, is what they say. And uh, you find Julian Huxley also said the same thing when he was CEO of UNESCO. And I've gone through his writings from his own books on the air in previous years, which are up in the archive section at cuttingthroughmedias.com. But the military-industrial complex, not only are into all your surveillance, they're into much, much more with government, this cosy agreements they have with governments, 
because governments are essentially fascistic nowadays, you see, and that's how the system is to be run, the sort of fascist oligarchy at the top and uh, run in a communist style for all the public below them, a, a socialized uh, communist style with masses of bureaucracy running our lives and experts running our lives right down to, we've already got it um, with the, the child protection agencies and so on, snatching children wherever they want to, mandatory strange sex, I say strange edu- uh, sex education in school for children who are just going in at five years of age. And uh, this is all mandatory stuff now. And that was all part of the destruction of the old system. And it's order out of chaos, you understand. You must have total chaos. Chaos means chaos, where nothing is normal. And then you bring in the new normal. That's what they mean by that. Now, Lockheed Martin is also into, heavily into uh, this post, uh, well, post-nation state um, uh, system, this global system, this one-world governmental system, big time. And, of course, they are famous for making warplanes and all kinds of military equipment and missiles and so on. But you don't know that they're actually in charge of doing your own census in the U.S. and Britain and elsewhere. And I'm putting up links tonight. And um, it's from, actually, it's from Organized Rage, it's called, .com. And they put links up on uh, the census systems and from, from Lockheed's own site, by the way. And it gives you the proof from the U.S. Census of 2010, from the Census GovNote, the Government News, and from the English Government, you've got a PDF, and, and you can also search the Martin and get the pages from them if you want to. But the links, all the links are on here, and I'll put them up tonight at cuttingthroughmatrix.com. So there you are, they're doing your census for you. It was quite a few years ago, too, I mentioned on the air that your, your taxes at the end of the year, uh, your governments um, that you send into your government, they then uh, satellite it over to India because they've outsourced it all and, and all that stuff's done in India and then put back to, to your native countries again. So, you see, we've been international for years and you just didn't know it and you're paying people, foreigners, to get jobs in their own countries. That's what globalism's all about. And also tonight, too, um, I'm going to mention a, a video that's up there and if you punch, of course, uh, see more at the bottom of the video, you'll get this particular uh, write-up on what's happening and um, on Libya. And it says here, the war on Libya is a practical lesson in the postmodern nihilistic lexicon of internationalism. A war isn't a war. Uh, far from it. It's a humanitarian ent- enterprise to keep the peace. War is now peace, and soldiers are peer- peacekeepers. In a deja vu from the 1980s, a pan-Islamic radicals uh, driving their rebellion, a gaggle of armed gangs and paramilitary organizations stemming from the Muslim Brotherhood are redefined as heroes of democracy. And that's true, isn't it? It says, these are the people to be put in power in post-intervention Libya. Their leader, Abdel al-Hasidi, former Taliban fighter, notorious Libyan terrorist, proudly announces that quite a few of his rebel heroes are fighters from al-Qaeda, and it is now stated in the press that al-Qaeda is pouring in Libya to be, uh, well, he's going to be our new allies. Uh, this is not a surprise at all. The hotbed of the rebellion uh, is in, uh, I think it's Serenika, or is it Nisa? It's one of the world's capitals of Islamic terrorism. This is the land of freedom now being protected by the UN no-fly zone in a brazen repeat of the UN-Al-Qaeda-Hezbollah alliance in the Balkans in the 1990s. And that's exactly what it is, folks. 
I mean, it's exactly what Orwell said. Who are we fighting today, East Asia, West Asia? No, we're allies with East Asia this time, fighting West Asia. And it's the same with Al-Qaeda. We're suddenly allies, we're enemies, we're allies, we're enemies. It was the same with the Soviet Union. During World War II, Stalin was Uncle Joe. All over the newspapers in the West, the great Uncle Joe that was helping the allies. And then after they needed another bad boy, so he turned into the bad bear. Anyway, it says, meanwhile, NATO is still building permanent bases in Pakistan and deploying predator drones to bomb Pashtun farmers to fight pan-Islamism. Of course, that's the excuse they're giving. It says, the mass campaign of destabilization being waged all across North Africa and the Middle East has its most recent parallel in the wave of chaos that was unleashed on black Africa back in the 1970s. See, this is Brzezinski's stuff, really. The key words here are divide and rule, and it's also Kissinger, create chaos to impose a new order of things. Use any means whatsoever to shred the sovereign nation-state. Then balkanize the population to keep them squabbling with each other, safe in the knowledge that uh, all the natural resources are yours to take, and human resources will be cheap and desperate. In other words, that's, that's exactly what they did in Iraq, too. Ship in hard power mercenaries to protect the production hubs, but also soft power specialists, that is, the NGOs to manage the misery and facilitate the population's adaptation to a wonderful lifestyle of communal simplicity, famine and destitution. This age-old formula is the one being applied for completely remaking the Islamist world as expressed in the combined Brzezinski-Bernard-Lewis-Pinak doctrine, the PNAC doctrine. The first big step was to create what Brzezinski called an imperial mobilization into the region to establish a permanent international military presence. This was accomplished with the Iraq and Afghanistan-Pakistan wars. At the same time as Brzezinski said in his book, The Grand Chessboard, published in 1997, imperial mobilization would come hand-in-hand with installment of a police state structure in the West. See, they knew what they were going to do to the West. That's what I would say. When we're ready to finish off the Middle East for them, they're going to be pulling the rug away from under the people in the U.S. with inflation and all the rest of it. And they're doing it. The next stage would be, as it is now, to shred the region bit by bit, nation by nation. Various client regimes, such as Mubarak's, was also have to go, was scheduled to go, in that they have an established national structure and therefore are not yet ready to, for open balkanization and plunder under international management. In these cases, the favorite method is a soft power coup, the color revolution using NGOs, networks, local radicals and army factions. The end result, the, 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 the seeing tomorrows of all this will, of course, be Congo-like tribalized wastelands and extremely pliable military-dominated governments like the ones now in place in Egypt and Tunisia. That's what they do wherever they've gone. They balkanize it, get them all fighting each other. You know, there's hundreds, over a hundred tribes living in uh, Libya, and it's Gaddafi that got them all under his thumb to keep the peace. North Africa will become a, a protector of the European superstate, uh, Europe's Mexico, a source of easy revenue, cheap workers, and plenty of panic migrations, border conflict, armed gangs, and Mediterranean piracy. The Middle East itself will be as stated in various white papers, example, Brzezinski and Gates on Iran, Time for a New Approach, that was in the Council on Foreign Relations, 2004, divided between two internationally managed blocs, one Sunni and the other Shia, centered in Turkey and Iran, respectively. A dialectical process of control conflict will eventually result in the creation of a general Middle Eastern Union, which is protected, uh, projected to be a, a trade corridor between the expanded blocks of the EU and the, the ASEAN bloc as well.
people being used as pawns in this grand game to bring about this process uh, shouldn't be mistaken. Uh, the only thing they'll get out of this is this non-stop dynamic of conflict and the destitution. Their former nations will have been turned into deculturalized wastelands to be managed by global agencies, policed by international forces, and of course mercenaries too, private ones. Everything of value will have been taken over by the international financiers, oil wells, pipelines, the Suez Canal, the Ormos infrastructures, and so on, including their aquifers as, so, as, as well for the water. So it says... Um, we're already well into this, which is to be just another chapter in the poorly understood process that is globalization, which is the hostile takeover of the world by a handful of financial oligarchs using international agencies as their enforcers. Back with more after this break. Hi folks, we're back and we're cutting through the matrix. I'll also put an article up tonight to do with uh, working for free. That's the end thing today is working for free to try to get a job. And uh, they tried that years ago in third world countries. In order to get a job there, you had to maybe uh, grovel and grovel along until the person took you on for free. You'd work for six months or however long that you'd stick at it. And maybe, maybe, just maybe, they'd end up giving you a real job, part-time or full-time. Well, that's what they're advocating across Britain and elsewhere now. So I'll find that link and put it up for you, too, at cuttingthroughmates.com at the end of the broadcast. And also, Australia, of course, has a, a new um, prime minister, Fabian Socialist, member of the Fabian organization, like the last one was, too. And she's wanting her name down in history as the first Prime Minister to ensure uh, that uh, she's putting the carbon taxes on personal as individual carbon taxes uh, in, in history so she'll get the pleasure of having her name chiseled in stone somewhere, no doubt, or maybe smeared, who knows, with some other foreign kind of stuff. But anyway, um, that's going ahead in Australia. And I said a few years ago that would happen when they tried to introduce it, saying it was just for all big companies. And so, No, 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 I said it was, it's going to come down to personal taxes, and that's what it is. It doesn't matter if they call it energy taxes or carbon taxes. It's all the same thing uh, with their strange little calculations, this bogus nonsense with their, with their special computers, of course. Uh, to figure out how much energy it costs to produce that little gadget you just bought and you're going to get charged with this, even though, of course, the companies themselves are the guys making all the profits, the guys that make it. But it says Australians would face an, an $863 hike in annual household costs when a price is put on carbon pollution, the new Treasury modelling predicts. I love, they love their model computers, they special computers just to give them the answer they want. And it says here that uh, the Treasury modelling released under freedom of information laws also warns against using carbon tax compensation as an instrument of tax reform, as suggested by climate change advisor Ross Garneau. Anyway, the whole thing is this is coming all your way because Rothschild has said so. He said this, that his bank would be uh, the one that would all go through for the whole world. That's an awful lot of loots going through there every second of interest, I should say, you know. Uh, because he's going to get this massive, massive interest. But then he and his gang, and there is a gang around the Rothschilds that really set out a long time ago a society to take over the planet. And these are the guys, again, who helped form the Cecil Rhodes Foundation, which turned into the Royal Institute of International Affairs, joined with the Milner Group, who were also comprised of bankers, 
etc., uh, etc. Et this is their, their strategy, and they're succeeding because most people are totally ignorant that their facts, that, that, that their governments have been run by these characters for over a hundred years, pretty well outright. But this is Australia's the first one to go along with it, and it's, it's, it's interesting too because uh, Rand Corporation. Now, the Rand Corporation is a non-profit institution, it says on its website, that helps improve policy and decision-making through research and analysis. They bring in, they rake in billions of dollars across the world every year. They advise the U.S. government, the British government, Indian government, every government across the planet. They're just there advising, you know. And it's a private non-profit organization. Uh, but they seem to do all the, the real data for all these wacky uh, projects like carbon taxing and so on. And this article, this one I'll link up, up tonight too is their PDF to do with basically, it's really what it is, is how to get the British public to go along with paying personal carbon taxes. That's what it really is all about. And, and you can read it for yourself. And uh, I'm sure every country is going to get the same rand uh, are paid for the same Rand advice, pay a lot of dough to these characters to tell us what to do. And, of course, Rand, again, is just another policy uh, group, really, run by the same institution, the Royal Institute of International Affairs, that runs the world. You've got to pretend that they're distant from them or distanced from them, but they're not. They're all working together for the same uh, basic ending. And... An article here, too, on John Gibbons, who's an ex-Irish Times eco-fascist, and he joins the Sovereign Independent newspaper in the war against Al Gore's global warming inconvenient lies. And it says here, um, the Sovereign Independent is proud to welcome its latest member to its dedicated staff in the fight against the New World Order in the shape of John Gibbons, ex of the Irish Times newspaper. Uh, in a recent, recent interview, John explained his decision. He says, I came to the conclusion after a period of self-analysis and rehabilitation, combined with my own rediscovered power of critical thinking, that I and many of my friends had been duped by the IPCC. That's, that's Petura's lot, the government, the railway engineer. That's, he's getting every grant under the sun for his private companies in India right now through our tax money via the UN. Anyway, and another so-called green or, and other so-called green organizations over a long period of time. It was actually my daughter that pointed out to me that CO2 was actually essential for life. And if we stopped CO2 production, then all the plants and fluffy animals, of which I love very much, would all die. It says, then I had the eureka moment when I realized that she meant humans too. It's true, most of these people don't think, you see, especially the followers. But unfortunately, all these newspapers now have their eco-fascist columnists under environmental uh, journalism. And environmental journalism means you've failed at all other kinds of journalism, but now it's almost, well, it's essential you've got to have one of them on your board for a newspaper, almost by law, you might say, to get the propaganda through to the public, since all media works for the big boys themselves, anyway, who all work for the big agenda. And it says, the reporter says, and how did you feel realizing that an international unelected organization such as the United Nations had lied to the world for decades on the subject of global warming? And John says, well, I didn't believe it at first and even refused point blank on many occasions on the national areas to look at the scientifically peer-reviewed evidence against my religious belief. And that's what it is. It's a religious belief, isn't it? Back with more after this break. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. 
Because you can handle the truth. Hi, folks. We're back, cutting through the matrix. I'll put up tonight, too, uh, a links to Bloomberg, who talks about uh, basically the, 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 the central, the federal banks of the U.S. and how they were discounting uh, and lending money to foreign banks at the height of the financial crisis. And it says here, the central bank released about 29,000 pages of secret loan documents yesterday under court order, almost three years after Bloomberg LP first requested the details. Brown speaks with Betty Liu on Bloomberg Television's In the Loop. And then they have another one uh, on Mark Williams, a former Federal Reserve Bank examiner who's now an executive in residence at Boston University's School of Management, discusses the Fed's release of data on discount window lending, that's what they call it, during the financial crisis and prospects for transparency at the central bank. Well, good luck on that one. William speaks with Frank Eric Schotzer and Lizzie O'Leary on Bloomberg Television's Inside Track. And there's quite a few videos there that you can watch if you can. I can't really watch these things because I don't get enough uh, speed on the satellite download that I, I use in a country here. Because I'm supposed to move into the big city, you see, and, and you know live in some tiny little apartment and be fashionable and all that. And I couldn't do that, I'm afraid. I'm too much a country boy. But anyway, it says here, we become a nation of takers. This is another article, Wall Street Journal, not makers. More Americans work for the government than in manufacturing, farming, fishing, forestry, mining, and utilities combined. Now, that's called, called socialism, folks, if you don't know what that is. If you want to understand the better, the better why so many states from New York to Wisconsin to California are teetering on the brink of bankruptcy, consider the depressing statistic. Today in America, there are nearly twice as many people working for the government, 22.5 million than in all of manufacturing, which is 11.5 million. This is an almost exact reversal of the situation in 1960 when there were 15 million workers in manufacturing and 8.7 million collecting a paycheck from the government. It gets worse. More Americans work for the government than work in construction, farming, fishing, forestry, manufacturing, mining, and utilities combined. We've moved decisively from a nation of makers to a nation of takers. Nearly half of the $2.2 trillion cost of state and local governments is the $1 trillion a year tab for pay and benefits of state and local employees. Is it any wonder that so many states and cities cannot pay their bills? It's almost like the Soviet Union, in a sense, only with the fascists on top. That, mind you, they had that in the Soviet Union, too. They had the big fascist corporations, a lot of them were American, uh, all through the Soviet era. Every state in America today, except for two, Indiana and Wisconsin, has more government workers on the payroll than people manufacturing industrial goods. Consider California, which is the highest budget deficit in the history of the states. The not-so-golden state now has an incredible 2.4 million government employees, twice as many as people at work in manufacturing. New Jersey has just under two and a half as many government employees and manufacturers. Flora's ratio is more than three to one. So is New York's. Even Michigan, at one time the auto capital of the world before it moved to China, and Pennsylvania, once a steel capital before it moved to China as well, have more government bureaucrats than people making things. The leaders in government hiring are Wyoming and New Mexico, which have hired more than six government workers for every manufacturing worker. Now, it is certainly true that many states have not typically been home to traditional manufacturing operations. 
Iowa and Nebraska are farm states, for example, but in those states there are at least five times more government workers than farmers. West Virginia is the mining capital of the world, yet it has at least three times more government workers than miners. New York is the financial capital of the world, at least for now. That sector employs roughly 670,000 New Yorkers. That's less than half of the state's 1.48 million government employees. So... It says, don't expect a reversal of this trend anytime soon. I'd expect it to grow, actually, because that is, that is the agenda. Surveys of college graduates are finding more and more of our top minds want to work for the government. Why? Because it's a safe job, right? Cushy. <laughs> because in recent years, only government agencies have been hiring, and because the offer of near-lifetime security. Where else can you get that, eh? is highly valued in these times of economic turbulence when 23-year-olds aren't willing to take career risks. We have a real problem on our hands. Sadly, we could end up with a generation of Americans who want to work at the Department of Motor Vehicles. The employment trends described here are explained in part by hugely beneficial productivity improvements in such traditional industries as farming, manufacturing, finance. well, the farming is almost abroad now, too. Um, manufacturing is abroad, most of it financial services and telecommunications. These produce far more output per worker than in the past. The typical farmer, for example, is today at least three times more productive than in 1950. Well, most farms now are combined into the agri-food businesses by the big five, as they took all, all the small farms away, which, again, was the agenda. So anyway, again, that's how you're basically in a form of, as I was saying, massive government agencies and bureaucracies running your countries now, which is the Sovietized style. That's what they found out too in the Rees Commission uh, put up by the Congress, which investigated the so-called charitable foundations like Rockefeller, Ford, Carnegie, and so on. And they were told that their job was to blend the Soviet-style system with the West, including the culture too, I should uh, say, uh, and until it would work seamlessly together. And that's already happened. So welcome to the new type of the Soviet, the hyper-Soviet, the global Soviet system. And it's true enough, that's the only place you get a secure job now is within government. And even the guys who are going to become police now are doing it for the same reason too. They don't want to belong to the losers because the losers are all out there hoping they can hang on to a job or get a job and pay all the taxes to keep all the government employees and big salaries and health benefits and all the rest of it, stuff that you can't get down below. So that's the reality of the world you're living in. Now, there's callers on the line. There's a Lucretia from uh, Oregon. Uh, are you there, Lucretia? Yes, I am. Thank you, Helen. Yes. Yeah. Um, gosh, I'm just finishing reading your books for a second time and want to read them for a third time. And I just, gosh, want it's it's so amazing. Mm-hmm. You know, listening to your your educational um, talks, it's it, it's like turning the light on in the cave. But reading your books, it's like literally seeing that you're just in a cave and there's a whole world out there of how everything works and I just want to encourage all the all the listeners that love you and all that you teach us to get both of your books they're just beyond <laughs> they're my favorite thing in the world they're different they're definitely different <laughs> yeah I don't know how to you know put it into words just incredible uh, it's 10 more levels deep of understanding um, mm-hmm. with what you write in your books it's beautiful but I wanted to ask you a couple questions um, one is not as quite as you know, what, well whatever you know Lindsay Williams um, was saying oh we're double crossing the Arabs but you were you were saying in your book in the priori priori of Sion yeah um, 
basically it's the um, the Mohammedans, the British royal family, and the Jews that are part of the, the whole ring of power at the top. Is that, is yeah, that correct? Well, yeah. Wells goes into that, H.G. Wells, because even before him, but he copied the same system uh, that uh, basically economists had drafted up before. When they were planning this new world for the 20th and 21st centuries, H.G. Wells drafted up a list of uh, favored races, an idea that came from Darwin himself, in fact. And favored races were those who were the most successful in, in, in society. And success meant rising above poverty, getting lots of wealth and power and holding on to it. And so he, he, he drafted up a list of them ones who would be brought through into the new system. And he mentioned that some of the British, not all of them, he was talking about the upper class, they would come through. Uh, wealthy Jews would come through. Those He was talking about Rothschilds and so on. And he had to do that because that was one of his, uh, the guys who helped pay him. <laughs> but anyway, uh, he, he also had a list of people who would have to be eliminated uh, because they, they kept rebelling, they didn't like being dominated and so on. And it, it always caused trouble against invading armies down through history. And the Irish and the Scottish happened to be on that list as well. So were the American Indians. And if you go further back too, you'll find um, an, an economist in the 1700s who were writing about Amer- the Americas. Uh, they drafted up the same list uh, for the Americas. The Indians would not come through. They would not adapt into this uh, economic system. And uh, Wells also said the same thing, that, that those blacks who could emulate uh, uh, the white man in economy, in economic ways, in success, uh, they, they would be brought through, the rest would also be eliminated. So you have to adapt or die, which again is one of the, the primary tenets of uh, Darwinism and evolution. So... Are these, are these same people part of the... Uh, I understand you said they've killed off most of the myrrh of... Binnigan line, but the Carolingian line are basically now mm-hmm. the nobility and the royalty? There's, there's no doubt about that. I mean, even today, uh, they, they go into these genealogies, and um, sometimes you'll find that this odd thing happens when they pick, for instance, a lieutenant general or governor for Canada on, who speaks on behalf of the Queen, the Queen's representative in her dominions, which is up in Canada and Australia New Zealand and so on. Uh, when you go into their coat of arms, like the last one it was in, it was actually, they had uh, symbols there from the Merovingians family tree. I thought that was rather interesting. So you, you'll see it in symbology. You understand these characters will give you more in symbology than they will ever in the written word. And that's how they can uh, put things in, right in plain sight. And most folk don't understand because they can't come out and, and uh, some just admit what they're up to and, or what they've been up to all this time. And if you go back into Pythagoras, for instance, and uh, even Plato, uh, they, these guys were all were trained in e- ancient Egypt. Ancient Egypt, in the mystery religions, it was only one stopping place. Because we find in Herodotus, he talks about it. We find, again, Plato too talks about it. You, you went for initiation in, in Egypt, and then you went to uh, India in ancient times, for more, for a higher or more education in the mystery religions. And then you went to uh, the Levant, as it called, that area of uh, Jerusalem and so on. And then you came back. But what, what Egypt exported mainly was revolution in other countries, countries which they did not already control. 
that's an interesting concept. And Pythagoras himself, when he went back uh, to, to open up his school after being in Egypt and being taught, uh, his school was burned down when, the, when the, the people realized that he was trying to get the young students to be to turn against the parents and the old society, to destroy the old society. And they even taught, um, uh, they brought in females too. And they, they had to marry them off, try to marry them off to noble people, noble families, and start to influence the decision-making policies and politics and so on. When that was found out, they turned against him. And that time, he went to Crotona to open his school. It was a part of Italy at the time. That was the Greek Empire. And they burned it down. And the same thing happened eventually with other philosophers from the same school who were all taught in Egypt. Um, you all know about drink, drinking off the hemlock for, for, for Socrates, for instance. And Socrates, too, was also blamed for trying to corrupt the youth. What it was, was again, same technique. He would also teach the young females in education, basically how to seduce uh, the, nobili- the nobility, get them in, get them married, influence policy, and also how to overthrow the, the ruling establishment of his time. And then when you follow it up into the Neoplatonic movement that broke out in about AD uh, 300 in uh, Alexandria, uh, it was the same thing. Fascinating writings came out at that time, about AD 300, of the same group, a continuation of the same group, um, where philosophy was to be the main religion, and uh, philosophy would rule through academia and eventually through revolution, always turning the young against parents uh, through millennia, if need be, to bring in a world where they themselves, the best suited, the wise men, if you like, would rule the world because the public were just too stupid to do it themselves. And they also believed in a form of evolution uh, long before Darwin because it was closely linked. The philosophies were closely linked, as I say, with not only Egypt but that also of uh, India. And uh, if you, you look into Hinduism, there's, there's not much difference in their, their, their understanding of evolution uh, from slime and so on into, into insects and creatures, then people. There's not much difference between that and Darwin. So there's a, a definite connection. So there's, there's been something come down. That belief that there was evolution, because, you know, that was another thing that really uh, woke me up is that you said, you know, believing in evolution is like a religion. Yes. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I, just because I never liked the dogma of, of Christianity, I never, I just kind of pushed it out there and that evolution was always mm-hmm. fact. Yes. And, and since then I've been kind of looking into or listening to like Dr. Stan Monteith. He had somebody on and it was like, you know, you, you, you realize Mount Rushmore was made by, not by wind and, you know, ice, but by an artist, by a designer. And yet the human body that's just so amazingly fantastic was, you know, so much, it mm-hmm. was put together just by chance. And it, that didn't make sense. But who would you say would be the best book to read to really um, show that there's not really fact behind evolution? You, you won't get it all in one book, and this is the problem with, see, knowledge is deliberately scattered. Deliberately, and I mean that, it's deliberately scattered. That's what publishing houses are for. And uh, that's also what Orwell, George Orwell, found out when he tried to publish a couple of his books, even though he had contracts with those publishers, which they technically couldn't break. They, They did, they turned on him when he wanted to write Animal Farm, and 1984, which really was called uh, The Last Man, was the title he wanted for it. 
but they turned on him because he was exposing the techniques of this ruling elite for world domination and that communism and fascism all worked together to, on this, to, to come into the same road using the dialectic uh, process. So, so he realized that the publishing houses were not there to, to put out anything to the public that they didn't want out to the public. And so the knowledge truly is scattered. And that's why it takes so long to go through lots of old books and get a paragraph here and there uh, that, that stands out. Like it just hits you between the eyes when you, you come across some amazing statements with, with the factual stuff behind it in amongst all the boring stuff. And um, that's how they give you the knowledge. But you can certainly go into um, university books, for instance, on, on uh, the philosophers of, of Greece and also the uh, the, 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 uh, the neo-Platonic Platonic movement, I should say, Platonism, uh, and find out what their philosophies, philosophies were. They actually, actually promoted feminism as well and lesbianism too. And one of their famous teachers was a, a lesbian uh, who did some amazing things in class which were rather disgusting to the people to shock them for shock value. The very same thing that professors will do today, in fact, to shock students. Uh, they were actually doing them in AD 300. So there's a common thread down through time. What's interesting too with Pythagoras, he had about four, four years when you joined them of silence. He couldn't speak just like monks. And the, in fact, the whole idea of monkhoods came from Pythagoras, even in the Christian era. Uh, of four years of silence. And even then you were still being watched to see if you were worthy. And then they allowed you in. So it's quite fantastic to read them. The Essenes too in, in, Israel, in ancient Jer- Jerusalem uh, seem to be part of that same sect or, or definitely connected with it. Same techniques. Back with more after this break. Hi folks, we're back and this is Cutting Through the Matrix and we'll try and fit in Rich from Virginia if he's there. Is Rich still there? You lost you lost him. Okay. Is Lucretia gone? No, I'm still here. Oh, you're still there. Okay. Yeah, okay. Oh. two other questions on um, Israel. Mm-hmm. I, I wasn't quite sure who, if that was good for the three families that basically have kept control. Um, Israel is looked upon in different ways. Uh Israel is, um, remember too, there's no definite mention of a place called Israel from, from the Persians, the Egyptians, or any of the other empires at that, in those tight days. There's no mention at all of a place called Israel. Uh, all we have really is, is the, the, what's called the five books of Moses or the Old Testament, uh, mentioning it at all. So, uh, eventually too, they should call them Hebrews at one time, um, and then they called them Jews much, much later on, uh, really with the birth of, of a people coming out of Babylon. That's, that's all we can really verify is a people came out of Babylon who supposedly had been slaves and they were freed and they went to this place and, and created that much, much, much later. So there's a lot of debates, even from professors in Israel, about the history. There's professors who say there was no Solomon, there was no David, these are myths, and so on. And um, Israel is more of a system, if you look at it overall. It's a system. I guess because, you know, you, you teach so much about that you you got a lot of your history by understanding where words came from. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate it so much of 
you know, being able to decipher words and seeing Cam in a name or, you yeah. know, or, or all the different things. And even just down to some of the numerology, it was fascinating. But, mm-hmm. you know, like Isis and then, you know, Ray and, and L or Solomon, Sun, Sun, Sun. Yeah. I didn't know if there was some other significance to the Israel and the... Well, Israel also is, is, is you have the, the first two letters, which is typically Kabbalistic, by the way, the first two letters are often used in names. And you have IS for, for ISIS, you know, and you have RE for Ra, you know. And EL is an ancient Semitic god that they used to believe in. So so you have the same thing once again, over and over, ISIS, Osiris, basically. It's the same as Osiris and, and the offspring. You have the same thing with Nimrod too, Semiramis, and, and the offspring once again. It's a trinity, always with a god, and then the goddess, and then the offspring, and this is this is very symptomatic of the same kind of system down through time. So it's a, it's a combination of that uh, IS, ISIS, Ra, and L. And sometimes I joke and I say, "Is it real? Is Israel is Israel real?" <laughs> you know. So you, you have all of that written into it. But it's a system. It's a system that comes down through time. It doesn't matter if it's a place or a people or a religion. It's a system coming down through time that has it fixed into its belief system that, that only it must survive. It doesn't matter what the cost is. It must survive. And some of them say it's because they were overrun so many times, being in the crossroads of, of invading armies going one way or another, that they, they turned inwards and, and built up a hatred towards other peoples that, to consolidate their system. And that may be true, but we do know uh, that... Um, the, the Talmud, which is the main uh, set of books that they go by, not the Old Testament or five books of Moses, but the Talmud is their guide and has helped them survive for all this time down to the present. So it, it comes down in a time capsule with a system with its own survival uh, be, being preeminent over anything else that happens in the world. The nations come and go, but Israel is forever. That's what that means. And it's a, it's, it's a deep truth in there. There's no doubt about it. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thanks for calling. From Hamish Marcel from Ontario, Canada, it's good night to me. Your God or your gods go with you.